Before we start today's show, I just want to give a massive shout out to Acast for making this show happen. Thanks, Acast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello and welcome to the PJ Podcast for another episode this week, drastically different uh, to the content we had on the show last week. Uh, We were talking about choosing to be child free in your early 30s, which I think is really important to always open up all the different conversations going on. But this week, um, (laughs) yeah, totally different. I've got my midwife on um, because she came out for a 36 week checkup to do a home visit at our house. And I thought, oh my God, cool. Let's have an interview with my midwife because there's so many questions regarding midwifery. And I actually got you to ask them on my Instagram and God, there were a lot. Um, Some just regarding the midwifery model here in New Zealand, what to expect with appointments. Um, Also just general questions about pregnancy and birth. And... I start the chat by humiliating myself with um, some of the messages that I bombarded my midwife Renee with in the early stages of pregnancy. I hope you enjoy that and I hope you <laughs> that makes you feel less alone. But it's a long chat this week, so I'm going to cut the intro short and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've had a lot of interest in what you have to say. I think a lot of people have... A lot of questions about what midwives do, and particularly in more recent times, um, a lot of empathy for what you guys go through in your job, because you are literally miracle workers, and things can be quite tough, Mm. and you don't always get um, acknowledged, potentially, in the way uh, that you should. So I thought we could go through a couple of pregnancy myths. Um, we could go through some of the embarrassing questions that I asked you uh, when we first started working together. Because <laughs> no doubt, I'm hoping that other people would have felt the same way. And and then just some general questions that people have regarding pregnancy and birth. Um, good, sounds good. Awesome. So some of the questions <laughs> that I messaged you, I'm just, just going through our um, messenger on Facebook. Hey, me again. So I ate a kebab today and it was meant to be falafel, but they bloody snuck chicken in. Oh God, I'm not vejo, but the chicken looked kind of weird and now my stomach feels a little woozy, but it could be too much fruit. Anyway, should I be concerned or can I take anything to help mitigate any potential poisoning? Oh, 
We had quite a few questions like this. Um, I actually sent you so many like regarding food hygiene and woozy tummy because at that beginning part of pregnancy, there's so much fear around getting stomach bugs. Yeah. What would your general advice be for people in that time? Like if they do get little stomach bugs or they have eaten something a bit dodgy. Well, I mean, once you've eaten it, you've eaten it. And you know, like you can't yeah. take it back out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and of course, you know, the official advice is around avoiding that kind of food where you don't know where it's made. But at the end of the day, it's really about not stressing too much about it either because I yeah. think we can get quite you know, anxious and stressed, you know, worked up about it. So yeah. um, ultimately too, it's really about the fact that, you know, your immunity is down in lower pregnancy, so you're more susceptible to the right kind of food poisoning type of thing, which is why that advice is there. But that doesn't mean to say that every time you eat something from somewhere <laughs> that looks funny mean that you're going to get sick. You know? <laughs> I know, because my friend and I, who she was like a month or two behind me, and every time we ate something, we would panic. Because yeah. you do, you just, and especially at the beginning, yeah. Yeah. you're extra cautious. And, and you're already feeling sick anyway, aren't you? A yeah. Little bit, you know? Exactly. So, so you're like, am I, like honestly, this pregnancy, it's been like, am I sick? Like, have I got a stomach bug? Is it COVID? Yeah. Or is it nausea? Like, yep. it's so hard to suffer it all. Yeah, it's so hard in the beginning. But, like, what would your general advice be, just in terms of eating, have your wits about you, obviously? Yeah. yeah. And, and just common sense. Yeah. You know, it's just common sense things. It's like, don't overthink things and try not to stress. Every now and then, what, we're all going to eat something at the beginning of pregnancy that we're like, oh, should I have eaten that? But, yeah, just try not to stress about that. That's what I learned really soon. In the pregnancy, you were really good at calming my nerves. So thank you for that. Another question. I licked the spoon of raw batter that I made <laughs> of berry and white chocolate muffins. One egg in the whole mix, but raw egg is a no-no. I barely ate much, but shit, I should be careful, eh? <laughs> oh, my God. I actually think I laughed out loud to that one. Some of these, oh, it's literally going for a walk. <laughs> and I'd be walking down the road with my headphones on listening to your messages, literally laughing in the street, like, oh my god. Yeah, because these are not even the voice messages. Yeah. These are just the text messages. So but fun. like raw egg, you're not meant to have that, right? No, well no, but like to be fair, in the tiny little lick that you would have had off that spoon, yeah, how exactly. much raw egg and you know what? Okay, how do you know that that egg, particularly that egg, had salmonella in it? Exactly. So this is always assuming that that has got salmonella. Yeah. That's yeah. when and the problems arise. You know, the difference between <laughs> chucking the raw egg in a cup and down in it, <laughs> then licking a spoon with the batter that had some of that egg in it, you know? Here's another message. Oh, my God. Okay, this is my last message. Uh, spoiler alert, it wasn't my last <laughs> message. But I woke up feeling weirdly good and no nausea for the first time in a while. Kind of worried, but it had a bath last night, so maybe that had an impact. I'm nine and a half weeks, but it shouldn't subside yet. Maybe it'll come later in the day. I'm literally complaining to you about my nausea not being there. There is that patch, Jay, like kind of, is it a little bit after the first try where a lot of the symptoms kind of dissipate? Yeah. And, and that's what we talked about. And like yeah. I often say to my clients, it's that time between, you know, that 12-week mark up until even up until you have that anatomy scan. Yeah. You know, you're not, you start feeling better, you start feeling less pregnant, the nausea subsides, and you're not also not feeling the baby move yet. Well, yeah, and you don't have really a bump no. as well. So you're like, yeah. shit, yeah. what's going on in there? So that was, uh, that was yeah. a genuine concern. It was concern. actually genuine. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Uh, here's another message, I'm back. 
even after I told you that was my last <laughs> message. Renee, bet you missed my every few days freak out. Last week I was so tired, like couch ridden and buggered, but I turned a corner on Saturday. Since then the pain uh, in my boobs, I don't even know where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> also thought my stomach had gone down. Okay, so again, this is paranoia because yep. my symptoms were subsiding again. So you've kind of already sort of answered that where there can be that weird period and you're like, am I pregnant, am I not? Absolutely, and I think too, it's quite normal to get a bit of bloating right at the start, you know what I mean? Yeah. And then that kind of sorts itself out a little bit too, which is... Answers so people whole, might think it's the bump initially, yeah. but it is a bit more of, I think that's what happened to me. Because at the end of the day, the top of the uterus is not starting to come out of the pelvis until after 12 weeks. So, oh. it's, you know what I mean? It's not really a proper bump. It usually is bloating. Yeah. Interesting. Renee, shit, I thought I was doing myself good by having a bit of lamb liver and heart for lunch. Sounds gross, but weirdly delicious. And then I saw that it can be highly toxic pregnant. I didn't have heaps. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'm such a punish. <laughs> Just a small serving. Am I fucked? What can I do? <laughs> oh, I forgot about that one. Is, is, that, is that an issue that comes up? I know this is a more specific food one, but... Yeah, I think because I think we talked about then too, it was more the liver thing. Yeah. You know, like with the vitamin A levels and things. Yeah. But with the little bit, the little that you would have had, yeah. highly unlikely, it would have been harmful. Well, I was just of the mindset. I was like, it's a la- it's like red meat, it's high in iron. <laughs> <laughs> it's so hard to navigate at the beginning, oh, though. So hard. Um, okay, someone just told me that cats are dangerous to be around pregnant, lol, and to check with my midwife. They're fine, right? <laughs> this comes down to clearing the litter, doesn't it? It's the litter. Yeah. It's the litter. So I think in those situations, like, basically, if someone else can clear the litter, let them do that job. Yeah. Is really the biggest advice about that. And then if you really had to do it, then yeah. obviously, ideally, wear gloves, and then you're going to wash your hands really well after it. You know, like, that, again, it's not to say that all cats have the bugs that we're trying to avoid there. Yeah. But, you know, ultimately you make that someone else's job. So I, so often you'll have to have a toxoplasmosis test if you're worried that you've come into contact yeah. during and, the pregnancy. And officially the recommendation is that you wouldn't do that unless you had, unless there was really clear symptoms that you had that um, infection. Yeah. Not just yeah. routinely because at some point in our life almost all of us would have been exposed to it. Well that's what point. came up in my test yeah. results, wasn't it? Yeah. That I had had previous exposure. We, yeah, we did do it because <laughs> we were really, really worried. Um <laughs> sorry. Yeah. Well, you know. So it was that you would have had past exposure, yeah. not recent exposure. So it's the it's the exposure in pregnancy that is the concern. Okay. So if you've had it prior to pregnancy, you don't need to stress no, out too much. No, it's it's yeah. In fact it's probably a good thing, right? Or c- well, I don't. It's not really like a virus bug. Oh, you know? okay. Yeah. So if you've had it, you can't get it yeah, again. Yeah, it's not really like that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah, it's a kind of a bit of a different type of bug. Okay, so that was some. That's just an idea <laughs> of some of the stuff that Renee has um, endured <laughs> during our nearly nine months together. Um, so thank you for your patience <laughs> and still keeping me on. It's a miracle that we're still here together. Hey, it got better. <laughs> Did it? I, it actually did. It was so funny. Right at the beginning, I like literally, like anyone who's pregnant, I was just so clueless about everything. But the more time went on, I just learned to relax mm. and realise that a lot of these things come down to just having common sense yeah. 
and having your wits about you. And I think sometimes you just start to work out what's right and what's wrong. Yeah, absolutely. And like I said to you before, like you don't know what you don't know. When it's your first, you don't yeah. know anything. And some of these things, no one talks about this stuff. They don't. No. I've never heard the cat litter thing. Yeah. And then you're all of a sudden like, shit, I've been handling cat litter. Yeah, ah. like you should have known this. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... Questions that have come through, um, I thought we could start from the beginning. Um, A question from Emma. She said, why did you decide to become a midwife in the first place? So I have always been really lucky that I had really um, great midwives. Um, And actually, funny enough, with all four of my babies, I had a different midwife, either because I'd moved areas or because my previous midwife wasn't available. Mm -hmm. But everyone that I had, I really... Loved. Really got on with her, yeah, really well, and I really loved that whole relationship that you build, that I'd built with that midwife, you know, from the time that you mm. meet with them when you're first pregnant, and then, you know, you go into labour and you have them, and they know you, and you know them, and then all the way through to that postnatal period when you, you know, say goodbye, um, so it's like 10 months, you know, yeah, that you are forming that relationship, and that you see them quite often, I mean, by the time you get to this point where you're 36 weeks mm. and we're seeing you weekly, and then we're going to, I was going to see you at least weekly. Postnatally. Uh, yeah. In it fact, becomes quite a, an important part of someone's life. Is. And then all of a sudden it's like, bam, they're gone. Yeah. And then you actually feel like this whole like, oh my goodness, how am I ever going to do life without this person? Like, do you become, do you, are you allowed to go on and be, well, continue to be friends um, with your clients or is that deemed I mean, you, inappropriate? I mean, you can. I mean, there's no rules to say you can't. Okay. I mean, I guess you can't. I mean, depending on your clients, you're not going to do that with. With all of them, there's yeah. always um, there's always the odd one or two that you stay friends with because you know you form a different type of relationship with yeah. them over that time. Um, but you know, some you do have to be careful with boundaries as well because ultimately, you know, try not to blur that line between professional, professional and, and personal. personal. So, um, but because that whole continuum from finding out they're pregnant all the way through the pregnancy, the labour and birth, and then the postnatal period, that was really what. I loved that. Yeah. And that's what drew me to midwifery. So right from the word go, my whole um, passion for midwifery was based on that LMC care yeah. provision. Um, I didn't really have a desire to work in the hospital itself. That wasn't really my kind of drive. Yeah. It wasn't about the clinical side of the work at all. It was really about that personal relationship. Yeah, building the relationship with women. Um, and their babies and then their families and then they come back to you again when they have their next one. So um, I had, I think, after my third baby, I decided, oh, yep, I'm going to join midwifery. And I had to, you know, I had to do a few prerequisite things. What to were you get doing in. beforehand? Um, oh, man, I've done lots of things. <laughs> I was a hairdresser for a little while. Were you? Started training and then didn't, and then stopped because then I ended up having babies. And then I did a bit of retail work. Yeah. I left at Baby City, which is kind of funny. <laughs> um, you? you know, bounced around a bit, you know, yeah, 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 in yeah. areas. Um, and then when I, we were in Auckland and I got pregnant with my third and I was like, we moved down here to Marsden because my parents were here and, um, thought with three kids and I knew I wanted to do midwifery. I thought, oh, I'm going to have to go where mum and dad is. Yeah. Get a bit more support. Yeah. Um, so we came down here and yeah, had him and then I thought, oh yeah, that's cool. I had this date in my head, like 2016, that's what I was going to join midwifery program and, um, had to do all these prerequisite things because I didn't really get all my high school stuff you know yeah and uh then found out I was pregnant with my fourth so I was like oh man what can't be my own it? midwife what am I gonna do <laughs> like do I delay it or not because I thought oh the baby will be like 
two when I start training? Like, yeah. should I do that? Um, funny enough, that happens a lot in the degree. Really? People end up <laughs> pregnant. So it happens quite often. And um, anyway, I thought, no, stuff, I'm going to do it anyway. So yeah. I did do it. And it actually worked out quite well because my youngest was, uh, he started school right at the end of my last year. Yeah. So he was at school when I first graduated. Um, and so, yeah. And then I've just been doing that ever since, obviously. So it's been um, really good. I still love LMC work so I yep. I still that is my passion that is where it lies and you know a lot of that is and that is I think a few people asked about what the best part of the job is and that really is the best part of the job is that it's that whole relationship from especially you know like first time mums too they come to you and they're like mm. you know clueless absolutely <laughs> clueless about the whole thing like oh my goodness I've just peed on a stick and it's positive now what you know yeah and you you know you're walking alongside them through that whole entire pregnancy and then you go through that labour and birth with them and then, you know, you're saying goodbye to them at a five, six-week postnatal period and, you know, they're like these old hands at mothering and it's just, mm. it's such a, a satisfying experience, yeah. you know. It's um, like nothing really beats that. And then, of course, when they come back to you again for the next ones, you've already got that relationship there. So Do you, you get just, a lot of re- repeat? Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. That's really it's cool. cool. It is. It's Quite cool because you already know them. You're not having to yeah. build that relationship, finding out, you know, because everyone's different and everyone likes information a certain way. Some people, you know, like to come and have their 15, 20 minute appointments and off they go, mm. which I really kind of struggle with a bit because I'm like, you know, <laughs> let's just have a bit of chat, guys. Yeah. Like <laughs> you and I just chat for like nearly two hours. Sometimes. I know. The amount of time people have been outside like waiting. <laughs> I know. I, I quickly learned that, like, okay, so she's got to go at the end of the day or you have to book me in between two sessions. Out two sessions. <laughs> yes. One of her favourites. Um, so, uh, another question. Oh, okay. Do we crack into, oh, where do we start? Do we crack into birth questions or do we go, there's still a, f- a few questions like surrounding midwives and what they do and what to expect and how things actually work for you and your job. Um, someone here wants to know how the pay works. If they don't deliver, do they not get paid for the last trimester? So because we're paid by the government, we're very, um, it's transparent. So literally you could Google section 88 and (laughs) you would find literally a list of what we get paid. So there's really no secrets in this. Okay, cool. It's pretty open. So the reality is, is that um, we don't get paid enough and that's probably the worst part about our job actually, Mm. um, given the work that we have to do. Um, But essentially it kind of depends about with the labour and birth thing, it's always interesting because people are like, oh, if they have a cesarean, do you get paid? Well, it kind of depends because if you get if you labour, if mm. you went into labour and then ended up in emergency cesarean, we're going to get paid the same because yeah. it's a labour and birth fee. Yeah. If someone had an elective, so, you know, they for whatever reason, to. they choose to have that um, operation to have their baby, well, if you go, you can claim a small amount of money. Mm-hmm. It's nowhere near the same amount as what it would be with a labour and birth. Um, but if you don't go... Because there's no there's no obligation that we have to go to that, but if we don't go, then you don't get paid for that labour and birth. Right. And you, we get paid incrementally, so we get paid when we register the woman. Then we get paid like after each trimester. Yeah. Um. And then like when someone births, we'll get paid for the third trimester and the labour and birth fee. So you get the most at the end. We're going to get the most yeah. when, at the birth. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Because wow, not, I never you know, knew that. Yeah, I mean, like, if you think about it, like, the registration fee, I mean, really, it's only one visit that we've done, but you're going to get paid $109. Well, that's anything we get paid, obviously, 
you've got to pay our own tax, GST, mm. student loan expenses out of that. So generally you're looking at 50 to 60% of what you get you're going to be putting aside for work expenses. So it's not actually that Amazing. much when you get out of, you know, at the end of it. And then you get paid right at the end when you discharge, you'll get paid for the postnatal period then. Yeah, yeah. right. Um, someone wants to know what do you think about the possible loss of the LMC model of care? Oh, so what well, is that? Can you can you break that down in layman's terms for me? What does that mean? <laughs> so at the end of this, obviously what I am doing is an independent midwife. Yeah. It's that LMC model mm-hmm. where, you know, like you found a midwife. Yeah. And then you just have Which seen Which is quite me. unique to New Zealand, isn't it? It's very new, unique, yep. Most places will have some kind of like team or community set up. Yeah. And that might mean that you might see the same group of midwives instead. And some people have set up that way in New Zealand because it works best for them too, Mm -hmm. where you have a group of midwives that you rotate to see and then you might get one of them at the birth. Yeah. Or, um, you know, you might have a group do antenatal care, but when you go into labour, you're going to rock on up at the hospital and get just whoever's on shift, you know. Yeah. And then postnatally, you might get given a midwife again. But so the way we work as independent LMCs, generally speaking, is that you just see us antenatally, most of the time we're going to be the ones that you're labour and birth and then you pretty much just see us postnatally. And mm-hmm. so you've pretty much just seen us that whole entire time. And again, because that's how why I came to the job, I'll be absolutely devastated if we lose that. Is there a high possibility of that being um, lost? There is. There is because the thing is we're not paid enough money, but sometimes the way it comes across is that we're not satisfied with the model. Yeah. As opposed to, no, it's not that we're dissatisfied with the model, we're dissatisfied with the pay. <laughs> yeah. So that's where it's really, really tricky. So, and with, you know, scrapping DHBs, now we've just got Health NZ, mm. it, we don't know how that things are going to look. Yeah, right. So the they future. could just decide to not go ahead with that. They could. We literally, we don't actually have any idea at all how it's going to look for us. And um, I just think we know that continuity of care mm. does, is better for women and babies, yeah. um, and all the research has pointed to that. So it will be a shame to lose that altogether. Um, but it's one of those things we're just going to have to wait and see how that transpires. Do you think if they do, you know, if you do have to kind of go through the system, you keep doing it? I don't know. It's a tough question. <laughs> I, when, I, when I'm on my gusto things, I'm like, nah, I'm out. Like, <laughs> screw I'm it, screw the it. system. Um, I'm not going to be told what to do. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But then I'm like, oh, but I still like my job. Yeah. So well, I don't That's know. a tough I one. I really hope it works out for you and guys. And just to see how it works. Because at the end of the day, you know, they may change the system slightly, but still have that same feel, yeah. you know. I yeah. guess, you know, it's just really hard to try and please everybody. That's the thing. Oh, it just makes me so mad because, like, knowing what I know, having gone through this time, it's just such a vulnerable time and – such an impressionable time in a woman's life that, like, I just feel like that continuity of care is so important. Absolutely. And if you don't get that, then, yeah. Yeah. We are so lucky here in New Zealand, though. Like, what other countries have it like this? Um, as, far as, I know, well, no, as far <laughs> as I know, nobody has our actual system. Really? Like, there are some similar types of systems in different countries. Yeah. Um, but usually where it's set up is, like, well, even here in sub-DHBs, you know, if someone can't find a midwife mm. independently, then they get put with the hospital team. Yeah. Where they might see a midwife or a couple of midwives antenatally and then, you know, for the birth they have another one and then postnatally they get another one. So a yeah. lot of countries work 
that way and that kind of community. So you're still getting that that good midwife care. It's yep. just not the continuity. Yeah, and and some people will argue that having continuity of care still is the same if you have a group of midwives if they're the same group of midwives, right. which that I are understand. on like the same kind of wavelength. Yeah, and I think they think they feel like that's more sustainable for the midwife itself, which I do agree to. I just yeah, for me personally, I don't feel like it's the same yeah like I feel like continuity of care is having that, that one, one person throughout the time yeah. you you know what I mean um how long are your midwife appointments this is someone obviously <laughs> who's uh looking into getting a midwife or you know coming to this point in her life uh what do you cover each time in your appointment are you open to what you want for labor slash north what does that mean labor north or are there restrictions, things you won't do? How did you find your midwife? So many questions. <laughs> um, okay, so first one, how long are the appointments? Usually they're around about an hour, aren't they? Yeah, so I generally book out an hour. Yeah. And every midwife's going to do it a little bit differently. Yeah. And you know what? Some are going to take longer than others. Like, you know, booking appointments, they're going to be longer because you're taking a whole history. Mm. You're doing stuff later on in pregnancy, you know, like because I do acupuncture, in late pregnancy too, often that's going to yes, take I'm up getting that more soon. time, you know. Like, and then others, you know, sometimes you go for those little ones, you know, like you've just had that 20-week scan and then I'm going to see you. It's like, oh, well, there's not much to talk about. It might only be 45 minutes for some. Yeah. And then other people, like I said to you, literally, they don't have much questions. They don't really want to chat much. So they come in, they get the essentials done and then they're like, okay, I'm good. So, yeah. And it's been 20 minutes. So generally speaking, I think between 30 to 60 minutes okay. is a standard appointment time mm-hmm. for most people. Um, and what is covered in each time of the appointment? Well, that depends where you're at. Absolutely depends where you're <laughs> at. And generally speaking, you're going to do your basics like, you know, your blood pressure. Yeah. You're going to, you know, wee on your little stick. We're going to have a feel of your tummy, have a listen to baby's heart. Um, and then basically cover any kind of questions or concerns that you might have, anything that's coming up, if there's any kind of tests or scans or things that we need to talk about that are going to be coming up to. We'll talk about why we offer them, if yeah. you want to take them, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, and just kind of take it from there. Like each one's going to be different because not everybody wants the same level of information about things as no, other people. I'm pretty sure initially my appointments were just me with all my paranoid <laughs> concerns and random questions and debunking of myths. So yeah, I'm sure it can vary um, a lot. But it's definitely got more relaxed throughout the time and I love now like just going in and getting the heartbeat and listening to that. I find it really relaxing having my stomach I know. And you're the only one that doesn't moan about my cold hands. No, I love it because you (laughs) use this really nice balm that smells good. Um, Okay, another question. Are you open to what you want for labour or are there restrictions, things you won't do? Oh, I think that's referring to am I open to the things you want in labour? Oh, yeah. Yep. Which, at the end of the day, I am very pro that this is your body, Mm -hmm. it's your baby, it's your birth, it's completely up to you what you do and don't want to do. And so my job is like, I'll talk to you about, you know, what the recommendations are and why these are recommended, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's going to be your decision. And some Mm -hmm. people will decline things that are somewhat routine, Mm -hmm. but what's important is that they're informed. You are involved in that decision making and that whatever decision you make, you make because you had all the information about yes, it. You this know? has been something very important that you and I have spoken about. Oh, and it came yep. up um, a lot in my hypnobirthing <laughs> course that I did uh, locally here. And there was this um, saying called brains. And yep. I wanted to bring it up because um, it's something that 
you know, can I, and actually just making decisions in life in general, I think this is a really good rule. So brain stands for B, what are the benefits? R, what are the risks? A, what are the alternatives? I, what are my instincts? Tell me about this. N, what if we were to do nothing? And S, please give us space to consider our options. So that was kind of like a model that we were given for around like the labour and birth period. But I just think it's a really cool thing to remember when you are confronted with making a decision. Absolutely. Because often you're... you jump into that default mode and you go, okay, well, I've been told I've got to do this, I've got to do this. Yep. But uh, half the time you don't actually know, yep. are that, there alternatives? Absolutely. Mm. And are there risks? Because the thing is, is that we're in a society too where it's like, why wouldn't we want to know everything? But yeah. actually sometimes knowing some, something doesn't improve it and in, instead we're creating more risk, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think it's really, really important for anything even all the like the blood tests or any kind of screening we have to do, like ask the question: Why? Why what's is this the purpose offered? Of this? Yeah. Why are we going to do that? What happens if I say no and I don't yeah. want to do that? You know what I mean? And then what are the risks from that? Yeah, exactly right. And I think that as long as the women have had a, a really good discussion about that, and that they're aware of what the benefits and risks are of accepting or declining mm. that said thing, then for me. I don't care whether they do it or not. Like it's, yeah. it's again, it's not my body, it's not my baby, it's not my pregnancy or birth. As long as she has had all the information and she's clear and sure about her decision, then my role is actually to support her informed choice. Yeah. Even if she's going to decline it. Well, and it becomes more empowering for the woman as well. Like absolutely right. You know, you yep. she get to make that choice from an empowered, informed position instead of something just being thrown on you. Which, you know, I completely understand how also, like, you get told something, you instantly assume that that's what you have to do, but it is a good reminder that you don't. Question it all. Yeah. Always question it. And don't feel bad about questioning, because sometimes people will do, oh, well, I'll just do whatever you recommend. Like, if you think I should do it, I'll just do it, because, you know, you're the expert in this. I've said that to you a few times, and you're like, no, you you need to decide. This is absolutely the start of your parenting decision-making. You know what I mean? And so you... And you are the expert of your body mm-hmm. and you just have to, yeah, just be very clear. And even if you don't want to make a decision right then and then, say, okay, I'll go away and think about it and then I'll get back to you. Because I I respect that so much more when people do that because then I know that whatever decision they come back with, it's truly important. And they've really mm-hmm. made it and they've thought about it and they're like, you know what, actually this is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Rather than, I mean, there's always going to be the people that are like, oh yeah, whatever, I don't care, I'll just do the test. I mean, that's fine if that's your prerogative. But I just prefer if people are really clear about why we're checking yeah. and that they're really happy with that. Because, you know, sometimes there are things that come up and you're like, well, what are you going to do with the information? Mm. Is that going to benefit you to know that? Or is it going to stress you out? Because we might not do You mean when you hear that. horror stories from people or um, situations where people get thrust into and then you think that it's a given that that has to happen. Yeah, or, you know, just <clears> as, sometimes there's screening things where, you know, what if it comes back and it's not a normal result? Mm. Well, what are we going to do about that? You know, like what does that look like if that comes back abnormal? And then we can be like, well, these will be some of the options yep. that may be presented to you. Would any of these options be things that you would or wouldn't do? Because, you know, if someone's like, oh, well, I wouldn't do any of that anyway, then okay, well, then what would be the point of knowing? Yeah. If you're going to decline, what the, if this test was abnormal and you're going to decline what options I'm going to give you, yeah. then why bother doing the first test? You know what I mean? Yeah, like those yeah, are things, yeah. I wouldn't say it like that, but you know, like those are the things that people need to consider. It's yeah. all not just a case of like, oh, what's the harm in just 
testing and checking everything. Yeah, right. Sometimes too much knowledge can absolutely yeah be overwhelming. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And is it actually changing anything? Because yeah. at the end of the day, the one thing you know, I was just reading an article. It was I think it was actually talking about Australian um, birth rates and things like that. But they were saying how in the last ten years the intervention rates have skyrocketed. Um, like in labour and birth, but actually the perinatal mortality and morbidity rates has remained unchanged. Right. And so it kind of makes you question then, like, so more stuff is being done to women in labour and birth under the proviso of safety of the woman and the baby, but actually it hasn't lowered that rate. Yeah, you right. You know what I mean? Like there's yep. not, actually not better outcomes yep. from doing more stuff. So, you know, like that's the kind of thing, like question that. Mm. Don't just be like, oh well, they said that I had to do this, so mm. that's what I have to do. Yeah, ask them. You know, you're in labour. Well, hang on, and, and take them those stats and and go. Well, what about this? You know, but just yep. ask them. Like mm. at the end of the day, nobody, like everyone has the right. It's a fundamental right. Everyone has the right to to accept or decline any treatment. Yeah. For any reason, they don't have to even explain it if they don't want to, and they have the right to make that without judgment. Mm. And that can be very difficult. Particularly in maternity care. Wow, oh, just being a parent. <laughs> oh, mate, I know. Yep. <laughs> You're right. Like the the sort of, I guess, issues that you start to face during pregnancy are what you have to start yep. to learn how I to deal know. with. <laughs> but do you know what? Some it's not decisions yeah. for yourself. It's actually for someone else. Yeah, and but and the thing is, risk looks different to different people. Yeah, you know and also mean? your experiences. Absolutely right. So for some people, the idea of being at home in labour and birth. It's terrifying. Why would I do that? Why mm. would you take that risk? But then for somebody else who who wants to birth at home, they're like, for the them. Hospitals terrify yeah, me. The hospital is yeah. the absolutely biggest risk that they could take is that. You know what I mean? Everybody has a different experience and they yes. come from a different place and that's And there's the no right or wrong. There is no right or wrong. But yeah. it's about you and where you feel comfortable and where you feel safe. Because, you know, there's no point you saying, oh, I want a home birth because it looks amazing when you see these pictures and everyone's doing this lovely thing, but actually you're flipping terrified and you're not, you don't actually feel safe at home. Yeah. Well, then it's not going to work for you, is no. it? Because it's not where you feel comfortable or safe. Yeah. And it's the same at the hospital. If being at the hospital terrifies you, you Because people feel associate safe. that with sickness or, you know, surgery yeah, and all the right. things that could yeah. go wrong, yeah. then that might not be right for you And either. that may not be right for you. So it's kind of, that, that's where it's Individual. Absolutely so individual. And nobody else can make that decision for you, except you. Mm. Um, okay, we'll go back to some pregnancy questions. Um, uh, blah, 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 blah. Oh, what is the percentage of a successful VBAC? Now, VBAC, just for anyone who doesn't know what a VBAC is. It's vaginal birth after caesarean. Oh, yes, that's right. Yep. <laughs> I was thinking of the – oh, no, I was thinking of the Von Tues. Oh. Well, is it the Von Tuss or that the Tuss? That's Von Tuss, but yeah, I mean, that's when they the V, right? So. Yeah, <laughs> so many V words in this whole topic. Um, okay, so vaginal birth after caesarean. Yeah, what is the percentage of a successful VBAC? So it's, it's actually quite good. Like I think after your first caesarean, I think it's something around that 70% mark. Oh, wow. Roughly around there. Yeah. 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 So sometimes it's very dependent on why you had that first caesarean. Yep. You know, some people have had electives because they've had a breech presentation for that first baby, so essentially they're coming into this birth as a first-time mum. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. Um, and others might have had, you know, the baby was just in a funny position, and then, of course, this baby's a different baby, so it might be in a good position. But, yeah, it's actually quite 
good, like 70 something percent. I it's, can't remember exactly what it is, but yeah. something around that. Um, does curb walking help to move the baby? I've never heard of curb walking. What is this? So, you know, the side of the curb, yeah. you've know, you got the road because it's like a lip. Oh, so like what, you have one down, leg up. up, down, up, down. One turnaround. leg up, one yeah, leg yeah, down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, Theoretically, yes, it does, because what you're trying to do is you're trying to, you can actually just do it up and down stairs really too, but um, it's to shift, you're shifting your pelvis side to side in the hopes too that it's helping the baby to shift its head. Particularly, some people do it about, you know, trying to get labour started. It's really more about trying to get the baby into a better position, because sometimes babies can have their heads on weird angles, so it's kind of about, you know, jimmying the baby, jimmying the pelvis to try and get the baby to kind of shift its head. I'm currently sitting on a Swiss ball. Um, would that have a similar effect? Um, it can if I, in a different regard. Yeah, okay. so it's up and I down. Notice. Sometimes it's the number eight circles on oh, there too. Oh, yep. like that, that. Yeah, that can help Ooh. too. So you like get belly dancing. Yeah. <laughs> um, when do you recommend doing that? Because some people are like, <gasps> should I have a Swiss ball from the get-go or is that more of a third try thing or – I mean, if it's comfortable for you, you can, I guess. I just feel like it's not doing me any harm when I sit on it and it feels comfortable. Well, it doesn't do harm, that's the thing. Um, We can try and do a whole lot of things pre-labour, you know, pre-labour starting. And I don't think any of, I think it can all be helpful, but I think that it's generally in those early labour kind of times, active labour, where it's more useful because the contractions will help to... Along with that movement, the contractions will also help encourage that baby to get down. Because sometimes we can do all this stuff to try and get babies in good positions and think, oh, yeah, it's worked. The baby's now over here. Yeah, I can feel yeah, it. Yeah. And then you go to sleep at night and you wake up and you're like, oh, my goodness, it's back on the same side. How's inflating? <laughs> but, you know, like it's that's become this baby's favourite position, right? Yeah, so it's going to yeah. want to gravitate back to its favourite. But with contractions, it kind of is, you know, giving the baby a little forceful encouragement to yeah. move down. So then doing those curb walking, bouncing on the ball, that kind of stuff can then also help encourage that baby to move its head. Because really, so much of this labour stuff is about the baby. Well, this is what you and I were talking about over lunch. I made you back in the egg pie. Um, <laughs> but the, the fact is that, yeah, there are all these theories like curry, hot curry. Oh uh, rasp- please don't, for the midwife's sake, please don't. <laughs> really? Have you had that? Have you? Probably once or twice, not that they tell you that. But honestly... They're going to say they have a curry because it makes you go toilet, right? It's going to clean out the bowels on the hope that irritating the bowel is going to irritate the uterus. (laughs) Which irritates the midwife. Well, it only depends on when it comes out. Yeah. You've got to clean it all out before I see you. Go right ahead, man. But (laughs) But if it's at the hospital, no, thank you. Um, Raspberry leaf tea, eating lots, well, six to eight dates. It's sort of like around that 36 week mark where. These suggestions but honestly, can come there into was play. research with the dates, though. Was there? Yeah, like I know it sounds like an old wives' tale, but there was research that came out that yeah, six to eight dates a so day. So that helps with the cervix softening. It, it increases. I think it was like it increases oxytocin, which of course is the hormone yeah. needed for contraction. So apparently, it increased oxytocin, it increased the body's like responsiveness to oxytocin, something like that. But apparently, women who ate six to eight dates a day in that later part of um, their pregnancy mm. were less likely to need to be like induced for being overdue. So, yeah, there are all these suggestions. Um, raspberry leaf tea is that one? Yeah, so that has a toning effect on the uh, uterus. Oh, yeah, okay. Um, so it doesn't really, you know, it's not going to kick you off into contractions. It's more about that kind of toning thing. Okay. Um, I think 
There's probably something behind it. I mean, the, these things have got to come from somewhere. I've been right. waiting. I've had that in my tea drawer. Have you? Throughout the pregnancy, and I'm like, I can't have it yet. Can't have it yet. It's too early. <laughs> so I could probably have it now, and it's not going to. Oh well, why not? Throw me in six weeks to labour. Right? Very unlikely. Do you know what? Honestly, if you had, when you had a cup of raspberry leaf tea and you went into labour tonight, it's probably coincidence. <laughs> well, that's the thing. At the end of the day, it's not going to happen until the baby is ready. So but you can do it, yes, all exactly. of these things. You can yep. try everything, and the baby might not come because the baby's just not ready. Absolutely right. And mm. you know, things that, like nature takes time in everything, right? So doing yeah. all these natural things, it's a time thing. It's like with acupuncture. I mean, acupuncture works really well and it, there is a lot of evidence to I support. acupuncture. What's well, great when you lo- actually like the process of doing some it. People, yeah, some people, yeah, some people don't like needles, so. And some people do get a little bit fainty feeling with it. Yeah. Um, But there is actually research to say, like, say that it is helpful in, not prolonging pregnancy right. but again you can't you know like some people just like oh I'm overdue I'm going to go to an acupuncturist and get stabbed up with yeah, these needles yeah, yeah. well <laughs> you know the chances are if you went and did that and you went into labour well again coincidental more than likely right. like it kind of is a building process like we start off slowly and build into it Yeah. Um, and you know like you've already been having acupuncture mm. for different things anyway throughout your pregnancy which you know to some degree increases your susceptibility to it being good for you because yeah. you know your body's already so used to it so um, yeah, it's I just, just found funny. it helpful. Like when I've had a um, uncomfortable position, like I was having quite a bit of pressure on my tailbone at one point, and then um, yeah, my acupuncturist did something, and then pff, just the pain was gone. Oh, that's so good. <laughs> it was amazing. And I know it's be, not always that I know, easy. But I should be. I should go chat to her for some extra um, <laughs> yes. extra points. Helps cause well because you do acupuncture during labour and the weeks building up to it. Don't yeah, you? so usually from like thirty-seven-ish weeks, I'll start doing it. So I did. Like in order for us to provide that service, we do need to have, you know, done a course to be certified in it. Yeah, like we can't just willingly pick up some Well, I'd hope not. I'd be kind of concerned. Oh, you know, you know. <laughs> um, well, like some people are like, oh, can you do it for this? Can you do it for that? And I'm like. I mean, you know, oh. I've had friends like, hey, my knee's bothering me. Do you mind, like, chucking a couple of needles in? I'm like, no, this is uh, for labour day. Yeah, so, no. We actually can't even, we actually are only really supposed to do it on our own clients too. Like, we, right. we're not even supposed to do it on other other clients. So, we usually do it from around 37 weeks, really just for that whole, starting to prepare the body for labour. Yeah. Um, start to prime the cervix um, and help, like, soften the ligaments around the pelvis, that kind of thing. And you find it really helps? I think it's great. Yeah, yeah, I think it's great, and even if, to be fair, I think, you know what, even if it actually was coincidental, if it worked or not worked or helped or whatever, it doesn't do any harm. No, nah. and so I think if it makes people feel like it's helping, then what great. is then <laughs> yeah, good, exactly. right? Yep. So, hold up, what was that? Boring, no flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
And how many, like, is that a common thing for midwives to do? Do you get the option to learn it? or um, No, well, it's not because you have to pay for it. Right. Know? Yeah, okay. so I think it took, like, we, me and my practice partner at the time, we did it in our new grad year, and I think, um, yeah, I can't remember how much it cost, so it's not that cheap, but, like, I probably so it's took an additional us, thing. It is an additional, and time, because yeah. I think we had about all up over the year, we might have had four or five, like, sessions with face-to-face, but then you had to spend a lot of time in between, like practicing on your own clients and things after they'd consented to you practicing on them. So, you know, like it was probably a good six to nine months, really, of training to do yeah. it. So, but if you want to do it, then but it's I worth think it. It, well, I think it was I think it's worthwhile, and it was something that I wanted to offer to my clients. So, you know, and now you know you've done it. Now <laughs> it was literally what drew me, and I heard that you did acupuncture. <laughs> I was like, oh, sign me up. <laughs> Um, oh, this is a very good topic, and it's something that blew up when I um, brought it up on my Instagram, talking about growth scans mm-hmm. and measuring the baby <laughs> during uh, pregnancy, and because particularly towards the end, you're, you're starting to monitor this more. I got told that mine was... <laughs> going off the charts, which was quite an intimidating thing to hear. And I put that on my Instagram and I couldn't believe how many people echoed the sentiment that they got told that they were going to have a huge baby, like huge baby, and then it ended up not being huge. And so they had all this anxiety for no reason. Yeah, exactly right. This is something. Why do they do it in the first place if there's like not this full-on accuracy? I know sometimes this can match up, but like what's the purpose? I know, well actually what's a good thing is if people go and read, I think it's Rachel Reed is her name, and uh, she's got an Instagram page called Midwife Thinking, I think that's what it's called. Anyway, she's got this new um, blog post about with some studies around big babies and about how it's more the practitioner's fear Mm. around it. So I feel quite strongly about this. (laughs) Um, Vent, girl. Yes, so yes, we do measure your tummy, but to be fair, most of the time we're trying to pick up the small babies. Mm-hmm. And it's not to say for anyone out there that had a small baby and, oh, my baby was really small, but it was fine. I'm not. It's not to say that that baby wouldn't be fine if it was small. It's mm. just that we know that small babies are, um, more vulnerable? you know, they are more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, because we're, we need to make sure, are they small because they're just genetically going to be small or are they small because actually the placental function here isn't actually working so well? Yeah. Um, and they're not getting the nutrients yeah, they exactly, need. Yeah. So the only way we're going to know that is to measure. So the interesting thing that I find about it, though, is that actually I was looking up, because, you know, I knew we were going to talk about this. <laughs> you wanted to come in armed with facts. <laughs> so I wanted to, you know, make sure that I'd read it, read up about it properly before I yeah, came yeah, start yeah. talking. But, like, I was looking up some, you know, some guidelines and some research about it before I came in. But it was funny because the Ministry of Health have a um, guideline for obstetric ultrasounds. Right. Because, um, you know, they have to have guidelines for everything. And it had a note at the bottom there that said that if we were from fundal measurements, so when we're measuring your tummy, yeah, if you consistently got at or above the 90th centile on your growth, that on its own is not a recommendation to have a growth scan for a large baby. So the only time that you would consider a growth scan for a baby that was in that range would yeah. be if you also had, if that woman had gestational diabetes or if you had reason to believe that she had polyhydramnios, so t- too much amniotic fluid. Oh. But without those two things, there's no there need. was no recommendation to really? do a scan for large dates. And the thing is, with a baby that grows big because of gestational diabetes, often 
is what we call macrosomic. And the problem, the different, I don't want to say problem, but the difference with a baby that's big because of the diabetes versus a baby that's just big. genetically gone big is that a genetically big baby is symmetrical, you know, like it's big all over, whereas a baby with diabetes is more likely to have a big head. Well, or big arms. not necessarily, but bigger uh, shoulders and chest. Right. Like they're fattier and bigger in their shoulder and chest, which then increases the chance that they might get stuck at birth. Okay. So that is, it's a different shape, bigness, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, like yeah, it's yeah. not the same as a baby that's big. Because in general, in general, and I know there are cases where this is not the case, and I'm certainly not judging anyone or want people to feel bad if they'd had a caesarean or whatnot because they were all agreed to induction because they were told their baby was big because they were making the decision with the information that yeah. they had at the time, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but in general, the body is not going to grow a baby that it can't birth. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it with the big babies is, one, ultrasounds can be wrong. Mm. And often they, the margin of error, which is an acceptable margin of an error, I'll say too, is 15%. Really? Now that is massive. Yeah. So like, say you go for your scan and you're told, right, you've got this four kilo baby. Yeah. And you're like, oh, well, that's a good size. Yeah. <laughs> well, 15% is a lot, right? Of yeah. Four kilos. Yeah. Because like, what are you talking about? That's like maybe 4.6. So 3.4 to 4.6 kilos. That's a massive range. Yeah. It's, you're talking like a seven pound something baby to a 10 pound something baby. Like it's not even... The thing that winds me up is it it just it generates a lot of fear and anxiety it and does. stress within people yep. and they're like, Fuck, it's gonna and be a big do, baby. And do you know what? It's always the person scanning you that tells you that. <laughs> That's exactly right. what happened to me. So when I was literally in a hospital on the on the little bed and she was like, Oh, not a small one here, this is a big one. Gosh, it's two weeks ahead. I was like, Fuck. Um and, like, what do you do with the information? It's not like... But what do you do with that information? Because yeah. now they've said it to <laughs> yeah. you, now it's going to be weighing on your mind. Yeah. Next minute, people going home Googling. Yeah. Is there an argument to say that um, it helps with gravity? If it's bigger, let's try and find positives. So, again, we're probably going to be talking anecdotal stuff yeah, here, not yeah, actual yeah, yeah, evidence. Yeah. But anecdotally, I would agree. And now, this is completely... Theoretical, yeah. So this is like my theory, <laughs> okay. Like. Because to be fair, I mean, you're talking about something like I mean, I I'm just saying this to give people who have been told that they've got a big baby. I just want to give them a bit of calm, you know. I just um, for anyone listening, right. yeah. So the thing is, is that a big baby really has to fix its position before it's going to make its way through the pelvis, mm-hmm. because otherwise it's not going to fit. So a lot of the time, when people are, like, oh, my baby didn't fit because it was too big, it actually wasn't because it was too big. It was the shape. It didn't have its head flexed properly, and the head might have been asynclitic, which means it's you know slightly tipped to an angle. So they really have to flex and fix their head position before right. they can come down. Otherwise, they just won't be able to make that movement through the pelvis. And then the other thing is allowing enough time for that head to actually mould mm-hmm. to fit as well, because at the end of the day, babies' heads are made to mould. Come out all those little. <laughs> suture lines and everything is soft on their head so mm. that it, the bones can cross over so that it can fit through. But that's a process that takes time. Mm. So sometimes it's going to take them a little bit longer, you know, for the moulding to happen so that the baby can come out. But if they can do what they need to do with their head and get in the right position, then more often than not, they absolutely will come out. And I find that the smaller babies, um, often smaller babies are the ones that end up needing help, like with forceps and fontus. Really? If I look at my statistics anyway... It was often the smaller babies, and one because they didn't cope so well with 
the contractions because yeah. they don't have the fat stores to right. burn when the body's going under stress. Because, you know, being in labour is actually stressful for the baby's body. Mm. Um, and so because they don't have their extra fat stores, they actually are more vulnerable mm. in, in labour and birth. And, of course, if the, you know, if the baby's ready to come and fully dilated and the baby's there but actually the heart rate's not great, then we might think, hey, actually this baby needs a bit of help to come out. Yeah. So often it's the smaller babies that need that help. And the thing is with smaller babies too is that if their heads are on weird angles – often they can still fit. Yeah. And so they'll come through the pelvis with their head on this weird angle and they come all the way down until they all of a sudden can't and yeah. they're like, oh, hang on a minute, now I can't work out what I'm supposed to do. You know, so it's mm. actually... It's all relative it's to the situation. Absolutely all relative. And I definitely feel like some of the hardest babies to come out have actually come out and you're like, in, you know, in the back of your mind you're thinking, oh, wow, how big is this kid going to be? And then it yeah. comes out and you're like, oh my goodness, where's the rest of it? Like, <laughs> yeah. it's half the size than I thought it was, you know? And So you know, that whole sort of mentality of big is scary, not it's necessarily. Just absolutely not. And I just think, yeah. let time test it, have patience, yeah. and just trust the fact that, you know, your body's not going to grow a baby that it actually can't. Get out. So my mom had shoulder dystocia, is yeah. that what it's called? Yeah. So that was my, my oldest brother, his shoulders got... Yeah, so the head comes out and then they their shoulders, <laughs> usually the anterior be, shoulder gets hooked up on He the was pelvis. a big baby, well yeah. he was like in the late nine pounds, yeah. <laughs> I mean kind of runs in the family, but um, would that have been because of the weight or is that literally just a... So there is, I think... A number of factors which can... I mean, a number of factors. There is some research that says that, you know, it does slightly increase the numbers, but it was something only like, I think it was like 9%. Yeah. 9% of big babies, as in babies. I think it was even over 4.2 kilos or something. 9% would have shoulder dystocia. So right. it's still not a huge amount, but a lot of the time it's shoulder dystocia as well is it's actually more a positional thing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like if you're lying on the bed on your back... Yep. Then your sacrum's being pushed in, therefore you're gonna, you're, it's less space there for the for the pelvis to move open for the baby to come in and rotate. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's where it's um, you know, there are there tricky. are positions that you can absolutely sort of work through in early labour. Um, well, I mean early labour, yeah, but generally speaking, it's going to be the the birth itself. Yeah. You know that you might notice, and there are little signs and things along the way that we can pick up where we think, oh, actually, just be aware that the shoulders might be an issue here. Yeah, just so that you can preempt that with positions um, and little things that can help um, as well. So it's kind of being aware that it can happen, you know. And it's still, even given our best effort to avoid it, mm. occasionally it still does happen. But we are well trained mm. in how to deal with shoulder dystocia. Okay. That's good because I, I I'll be honest when I, um, when I was seeking out like what medical assistance I got for you know the whole labour and birth I you know I'd heard that from my mum that she'd had that shoulder dystocia. And she always recommended getting an obstetrician mm-hmm. because she'd been a doctor. And then I was like, I don't know if I can even get an obstetrician here in the water. <laughs> Not here. Yeah. And so then I was kind of faced with going, oh, my gosh, well, is it safe enough to just have a midwife? Um, and then the more I looked into it, the more I was like, oh, well, I'm kind of just sort of projecting probably my mum's fears mm. that she had yep. from, from her experience. And obviously she was a doctor, so she would know things that – you know, when you hear worst case scenarios, you kind of naturally want to go for the safest option. Yeah. But the thing is, midwives 
are incredibly well trained. We're very well trained. And you know the other thing to keep in mind is your context. So here in yeah. the Warrapa, like we have our doctors aren't there all the time. Yeah. I mean, we obviously have one available twenty four seven, but the reality is is that generally speaking, they're their business hours. Yeah. Outside of business hours, like after hours or on the weekends, they're not actually on site. And the thing with shoulder dissociation is that's kind of time sensitive, you know, like yeah. Don't really have a whole lot of time to muck so around. So what do you do if if that happens? You've are they on call or? Oh yeah, we call them in. But yeah, what I, where I'm getting up there is that we actually have rectified it before we've even got to the phone. Yeah, that's right. what I mean. Like we we actually deal with it very very quickly. And because mm. you're thinking you ring the doctor, you're probably going to have them there maybe within 15, 20 minutes, depending on where they live. But sometimes you have to act really quick. Um, but with shoulder dissociation, you're acting practically like immediately. Like it's right. a it's a it's an emergent situation, but you've fixed you fixed it before mm. you've even had to call. Usually, that's been well. That's been my experience so far, anyway. Like I've never actually had to call a doctor for it because it's been fixed. With people who are high risk or deemed high risk, or you know have more health issues than other people, um, obstetrician can be recommended in that situation yep so sometimes people have complex issues either in previous pregnancies or just in life in general like they've got you know comorbidities that we need to think about yeah so in that situation we would refer through to the obstetric clinic and they would then have a consult with that obstetrician now depending on the level of care that person needs sometimes it's decided that we'll have a shared care relationship so Mm -hmm. we might still see that person in our own clinic's for the nice normal stuff, yeah. and then they will see the obstetrician for the more complex for the things. more complex stuff. Right. Um, and some people, it's just a couple of appointments here and there. Some people have so many so many things going on that actually you think, I think you're going to need to be seen more by the obstetrician than would be normal. So right. then you might hand over the care, and and the obstetrician and the antenatal clinic midwives would actually look after that person instead because they're probably going to be frequently mm. in the hospital in that later period and sometimes if they're really complex especially here in our area then they're referred on to like Wellington where they would have to actually go to Wellington and see Wellington specialists and plans can be made that they might actually have to birth there depending on what their situation is so I always you know like having a midwife is absolutely a safe option because we we have a good collegial relationships with our obstetricians so if we we're not trying to be martyrs or heroes. Yeah, if yeah, we yeah, need, yeah. if we need an obstetrician, my goodness, we will, yeah. we don't have any qualms in ringing them because at the end of the day, they are the expert in abnormal birth. They are the expert in complications. Yeah, if we have something abnormal or complications, and we believe that it's outside of our area of expertise, then absolutely we need them and we will ring them. Mm. But we are the experts in normal birth. Yeah, so. We don't need an obstetrician. Obst- yeah. Like here, no, none of our obstetricians do private practice. They're all you know publicly funded ones, so they don't ever see normal birth, mm. ever, because <laughs> yeah, they don't yeah, need yeah, to. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? And so it's like sometimes we have to be careful too of like whose advice we're taking, taking and yeah. asking because, yeah. you know, um, if you're asking someone who only ever sees emergencies, emergencies yeah, yeah, and yeah. Um, traumatic births all the time, then their experience of birth is going to be that a little bit more tainted <laughs> yeah. than someone who actually really only does really good normal births. You know mm. what I mean? So it's you know, yeah. I suppose the normal when people hear this, I, I, I wouldn't want anyone to feel like they're abnormal 
But you just mean like in a more high risk situation. Um, yeah, normal yeah. being low risk. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah and, yeah. and what someone might consider high risk or low risk might be different to mm. somebody else. But um, you know, in general, it's hard. I mean, normal is kind of one of those terms that gets yeah. put on stuff. And yeah, like yeah. you said, there's no judgment there. It's just the, you just mean a yeah. lower risk of situation where. Yeah, well, you've got no issues in labour. You know, your yeah. pregnancy's been yeah. fine, your labour's been fine. Everything we've had, we didn't have to get involved with anything. The baby's going well, everything's all fine. Then why do we need the to extra call intervention, an yeah. obstetrician? You know what I mean? Yeah, and to be, yeah, yeah. to be fair here, they wouldn't even come in. Yeah, if right. we rung up like, hey, I've got like, this woman why? and she's in normal labour and everything's progressing well, they're like, yeah, cool. Why are you ringing me for? You right. know, like, like the. At what stage in your labour do you need to make that call? <laughs> that maybe an obstetrician is the best decision for you because it's quite daunting when you sort of start the process. You're like, oh, what do I do? What's my best? What's my safest option? How should I go about this? Because often things unfold during the pregnancy, right? And that's not until mm. sometimes the third trimester. But that's and that's part of our job. Yep. So because um, normal physiological, there you go with that word again, <laughs> but it's kind of that, you know, that low-risk physiological yep. pregnancy and birth yep. is our scope so that's why we see you when we see you yeah so that if things start popping up anytime in that then pregnancy refer. then we refer yeah and right. you know there's different referral processes like sometimes it's a hey we send all these you know we send a letter and everything off to the you know consultant's office and they go you know triage it and go okay we'll see you in clinic on this time and we can have a chat sometimes we go in and see an obstetrician for a consult and then they're like mm, I'm happy yeah we don't really need to do anything else and you're like okay cool <laughs> or sometimes you have something that's a little bit more urgent, so then you might, we might just ring whoever's on call and say, hey, I've got this happening, this is the situation, what do you want me to do? Sometimes I say just refer to clinic, other times they're like, hey, bring them in, do an assessment, and then I'll come see them on the ward. Like, it's all very different, but that yeah. is Processes. part of our job. Yeah. Like, we're not, our job is really to, you know, facilitate that physiological process, but also yeah. to pick up those warning signs that things might not be quite quite what we think they are and it's the same in labour mm. you know that's why we do the assessments that we do in labour so that we can pick up when things are not looking the way we expect it to look yeah. yep. and then and again like we were just talking about before is that you know sometimes we do just ring the consultant on call and say hey I've got this person labour this is the situation this is what's happening sometimes they just tell us verbally over the phone hey try this try that give it another however many minutes or hours and then get back to me if things get worse or whatnot. Sometimes they'll go, oh, I'll so come So there is that sort of ongoing support. 100%. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm going to do a quick question that I certainly am fearful of. Someone is terrified of shitting uh, during labour. Oh, God. How so. often does this happen and do you judge the person? <laughs> We never judge the person, okay? I just want to start off with that. Okay, this is also why I'm saying, please don't eat the curry. <laughs> I love curry, and I've been told in late labour <sighs> to have the curry, so I'm so sorry in advance. So the thing is, right, is yeah. that if you think of anatomy, mm -hmm. the rectum and the vagina are literally like... Neighbours. Neighbours, like so close to each other that it's pretty much just skin that's separating them, right? Like the that gooch. kind of... Is that the gooch? Well, that's on what the outside that? part. That's the perineum. Oh, you know, yeah, the perineum. perineum. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the perineal body's under there. So like, but like internally, literally, they're, right they're one on top of each other. Mm. So the thing is, right, is mm -hmm. that some women in 
pre-labor or early labor will have, you know, a clean out where they have a bout of diarrhea, you know, which you put on your thing I had last that last night, night yep, Renee, you put that on your Instagram. And I'm in 36 <laughs> weeks and everyone said, oh, I had a baby the next day or that was the beginning of my labor or I had a baby two weeks later. So I'm kind yeah, of on high alert I right know. now. <laughs> That's why you don't ask on Instagram. Um, but some people won't do that. But the reality yeah. is, right, is that if there is poop in <laughs> Get your partner that to trapped, clean it up. right, it's going to come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the reality is is that most people will clean out, but actually when the head is coming down, there is literally no room for a head and a poo. There is no room for both of them. It's one or the other, man. Isn't the so, body amazing? So yeah. all of this stuff comes out it just to comes, make way it for just the baby. Comes out. And, you know, sometimes if people have quite a lot come out, you can <laughs> do like, hey, you know, sometimes like sitting on the toilet's really good for like this time when the baby's trying to come down because it actually is a natural process that mm. you'll naturally want to push and it can help the baby. So why don't we just sit on the toilet for a little while? And other times it's just a tiny little nugget that you kind of just wipe away and get rid of before the woman doesn't even know about it. Yeah, you know the worst right. thing? When they is have that, diarrhea? It, 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 oh my god, aunt. Yeah, but I've, not actually, I've actually not had that. Okay. Not in the actual birth process. Really? Maybe like early labour or... Because that's what everyone said. Yeah. They, get di- they get that diarrhea, yeah, what well, the people who get the clean They usually do that out. on the toilet. Yeah. Thankfully. <laughs> I haven't actually had that happen. Or in the bathroom. <laughs> yeah, but then it dissipates right in the bath. To be honest, it's actually not that. In my it's experience, diarrhea is going to go everywhere. Yeah, but uh, the water will water it down, wouldn't it? But generally you'd know, because you know diarrhea, you get the little bit, of, you know, get crampies with it. Yeah, so you kind of yeah, know, yeah. right? And usually people are like, hey, I just need to go to the toilet. Okay, cool. So this is like little bits of nuggets here and there, which generally slip out without people even realising. Believe it or not, but it actually happens quite often. Does it? Yeah, and we just kind of clean it up without even saying anything. And sometimes women will be like, oh, did I poo? And I'm like, oh, nah. And then, <laughs> and then you know what? The but you could them. actually guarantee that yeah. the partner's sitting there and he's like, oh, yeah, you did. <laughs> and we're like, we're like giving them <laughs> the glare like, why did you <laughs> Let her keep some dignity, man. <laughs> So it's very, very common. Okay, cool. More people do it than not. Yeah. We never judge anyone it's because very actually, to process. be fair, it's a very positive sign. Yeah. In fact, we often will will like Clap. document it as signs of progress because right. obviously the head's coming down and moving down and it's pushing that rectum as it comes down. So actually, it's good. While we're talking about birth, oh, something that I've learned in the last sort of couple of months is the transition part, which midwives celebrate over and the actual mother, I don't know, cries over. So it's that, that part in the labour where basically you're like, I can't do this. Yeah. I've got to go home. Like you're, Yeah, they want to run away. And they're like, just to get me out of here. Yeah. Yep. That to you is an indication that yep. baby ain't far away. I reckon it, we must look a little bit sadistic. <laughs> just you secretly know, clapping honestly, in the corner. There's, just, there's been times where um, actually too when we've been at home birth or something and me and my colleague had been there and, you know, the dad's all freaking out because mum's yeah. getting quite stressy and, and like, oh, I think I'm going to die. Like, I can't keep doing this. And like, we're sitting there grinning like the Cheshire cat. Like, oh, yeah, that means we're close. And the, the husband's like, the heck is going on oh my gosh do something and we're like smiling away they're like what is wrong with you creeps this means that we're about to say something it's good because it does mean that things are progressing and that is a result of an influx of hormones is that is that what it is absolutely is it oxytocin or um just it's just all the hormones of birth and it's working like it's usually a time too where you know like that progress of the cervix opening can be Know, kind of slow sometimes for some yeah. people, but right near the end, it, everything happens quite fast, and it's all a bit of 
overwhelm. And you know your body goes through that fight or flight response. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's essentially what's happening. It's that fight or flight response and your kind of body's like going, um, oh, we've changed our mind. No, we don't want to do this. You've got that big adrenaline coming to get you through. You'd think that the big adrenaline would do the opposite. I know, but that's what happens is, you know, like. But maybe it's just actually yeah, processing that from adrenaline. A, yeah, from a primal perspective. Yeah. People, you know, in any kind of situation that scares them, they're either going to have that, oh, I'm going to get pumped up because I'm going to fight you, or I'm going to get pumped up because I'm going to run the other way, mate. Yeah, and, true. You know, it was funny because, you know, like when um, there were the earthquakes and stuff in Christchurch yeah. or whatever, and one of two things would always happen if people were close to birthing, depending on where people were in the labour, either the labour stopped completely and the babies were like, oh, no, we're not coming, or all of a sudden these babies were being forced out, out. bang, <gasps> have a baby. Because, again, it's that fight or flight response and that There's primal that part, imminent threat. Absolutely. And that primal part of the brain is like either, oh, no, we can't have this baby here, it's not safe, or actually, do you know what? I need to have the baby right now so I can take the baby and run. You know what I mean? Like it's that wow. real survival instinct. Is that what they found? Yeah, it was quite interesting. I always thought about mothers during that earthquake time. That yeah. must have been terrifying. Yeah. Been, oh, I couldn't, you couldn't even imagine anything. Like, like I was day. in Christchurch for one of the quakes and that was just terrifying, but I can't even imagine yeah. going into labour during that. Like, wow. Know, you kind of think, I don't know which would be worse or better. I think I'd rather just shoot it out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, get it like, done. Oh no, I've just gone through this. I don't want to do it again. <laughs> okay, I've still got so many more questions. Oh, okay, back to pregnancy. I'm going to go back and forth and back oh, and forth. Um, is sleeping on your back really that bad? I'm struggling with the side sleeping and pain. This is one big thing that you hear quite early on, and particularly if you do yoga, they adapt the position so you're not directly on your back. The reason being... <sighs> so this is a tricky one because there has been research done about it quite recently too in here in New Zealand and they in particularly in like third trimester, you know, when you're yeah um the weight of the uterus is bigger. Yeah. The thing is when you're flat on your back, the weight of that gravid uterus actually is putting pressure on that inferior vena cava, which is that big vein that runs yeah. down um the back and it's returning the blood back to your heart so that it can circulate circulate around your body. And it was quite in women who were lying on their back, it was significantly closed. Really? Because of the weight. Okay. So there was a concern to the baby about lack of oxygen. oxygen. Yeah, okay, that's so what I thought it was. That, that is a very real concern. So that's why side sleeping became a thing that we talked my about. my mum, she was like, I never, I, I always slept on my back. Yeah. And do you Isn't know, it crazy? I know, but do you know, like, there's always going to be that thing, yeah. you know, for people that they'll always do the same thing and nothing happened. They did find that, you know, that was what the research did show, that people, that woman who slept on their back all night and we're talking like we're talking to solid yeah so we're not talking about people who because sometimes you go to sleep and yeah you and you think just you went naturally to sleep on fall your asleep yeah. on your back and then you wake up you're like oh my goodness why am I on my back it's kind of like but you've you often wake up frequently right yeah I mean could you imagine if someone said to you oh yeah I'm a late pregnancy and I sleep solid eight hours every night like yeah. who are these no. people like well didn't you say that that was also um a, a protective, mechanism, a protective yeah, mechanism. It's a protective mechanism. So we wake up so that we can change our position, and that it is protective of the baby because that um, if you stay in that position yeah. too long. Well, the study showed that they had the more that people kind of woke up and they'd get up and go to the toilet, or they'd get up and they'd just have they wake up just to rotate sides. Yeah. you know, you get so big by the end, it kind of wakes you up to have to do that. That was it reduces how much pressure the baby would put on the cord if the cord was in the way. Because, of course, we don't know where the cord is at any given time. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, But it yeah. just means that if you stayed in one position for for too long, 
you run the risk that the cord could have been compressed. And it's but it's the same thing in labour and stuff. We do it if people have had epidurals or whatnot. We are often going to rotate them and turn them so that they're not in that same position because that's more protective of the baby. When so you say it's protective though, isn't that just the bladder? <laughs> like honestly, <laughs> is that not all just about the bladder getting pressure? Well, you know, well it's going to that is going to keep filling, isn't it? You know yeah, what I mean? Like yeah, it's not, yeah. it doesn't care if it's night or not. It's just there's less room, so yeah. the capacity of the bladder is reduced when we've got that baby there. But um, you know, whatever the reason the person woke up for, what they did know is the people that woke up frequently in the night were less likely to have a stillbirth baby than those who actually wow. would go to sleep and sleep straight through the night. So, you know, if people fall asleep and they wake up and, oh my goodness, I'm on my back, like don't stress about it or freak out because what are you yeah. going to do? You can't yeah, change yeah, anything. Yeah. But it's just about trying to be a bit more mindful not to be. But sometimes you don't even have to be fully on your side though because sometimes that won't be comfortable, if, especially if people have, yeah. you know, tight pelvises or yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah, So actually you can just, you know, like roll up a towel or get a pillow or a cushion and actually just like lift up your bum cheek uh, and yeah. chuck that towel down there just so that you've got a slight angle there so that you're not flat, flat on your back because it's the – being flat, that's the issue. Yeah, Not okay. necessarily being, like, you can be on your back, but slightly shift that hip a bit. Slightly elevated. Yeah, so that it's relieving that pressure off that vein, so that that vein can flow normally. Well, that study can be encouragement for people who are freaking struggling to sleep right now. I know. <laughs> I, I You're always protecting stuff, your I baby. I always say that to people too. Like, <laughs> I know it's annoying, but just think sleeps. of it. Yeah. Just think of it as a protective mechanism. <laughs> um. So when you're pregnant, you know, uh, you run the risk. Uh, there are things where you're probably more susceptible to get, like you're, you're a bit more run down. The baby's mm-hmm. taking a lot out of you. So things like thrush and like UTIs can be quite common, correct? Yeah. Um, is it important to clear those things up pre-birth? Can that run any risk to the baby? So or in what case do you really need to act? So with UTIs, it can be quite difficult because sometimes people can have UTIs and you're more likely to have no, like, less symptoms with it. Yeah. And sometimes in late pregnancy, it actually presents more like people can will present with what we think is, like, threatened preterm labour. You know, like, they right. think, oh, I'm having contractions, and actually it comes back that it's a urinary tract infection. Really? Yeah, because, you know, the irritation yeah. kind of transfers to the uterus. But um, so that's where, you know, and obviously we don't want it to go to your kidney and then run the risk of sepsis and things like that. So often... Often people will still have symptoms, but even now and then you'll get someone who'll present completely differently, and yep. then it all comes down to the fact that they had this, you know, UTI. So you'd want to treat that anyway because it wouldn't be comfortable for the woman. Thrush again, it's not, you not, know, not it ain't fun, right? Yeah, it ain't fun. So often we treat that because it's ridiculously yeah, uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Um, and of course, you know, we don't really want you to have. And the thing is, is that most people wouldn't. Can the baby anyway. catch thrush if it comes out? And you've got thrush. Well, I mean, theori- how it works? theoretically, when they come through, right, they're going to have come into contact with yeah, it. So yeah, yeah. you do run the risk that some of that thrush infection could go on the baby. Yeah. And transfer, you know, and, you know, often babies with thrush present with oral thrush, like they'll get it on their mouth, like right. on their tongue or under their lips. Yeah. And then sometimes they will also get it like in the nappy area. You said that nipple thrush is really common. Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah, it is actually quite common. Yeah, sometimes, so when you start breastfeeding. Yeah, so sometimes they'll get it from the baby, like if the baby had oral thrush. Yeah. But um, also, but it also might not be that because, you know, obviously there's, it's a bacterial um, difference, you know. If yeah. you don't have lots of good bacteria, then it creates more space for the bad bacteria and the fungus to grow. That's right. kind of how it happens. And so yeah. like with the nipple thrush, Sometimes with wearing like the reusable breast pads, sometimes it 
if you leak a lot, you can create a lot of dampness. Uh, if you've okay. constantly got this damp pad up against your nipple. So what would you recommend no as an alternative? Well, not 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 to use them, because some people can use them and it's fine if you're not like a cereal leaker. But I know for, like, for me, I had a huge supply and I would just leak all the time. So for yeah. me, I had to use disposables yeah. because the um, reusable ones just constantly were always damp. And I had such bad issues with nipple thrush. It was awful. Oh. Um, and, you know, just, yeah, at least with the disposables, you could buff it out. Because the other thing, of course, is around like you have to – hot washed stuff, right, to cool yeah, the thrush off yeah, in yeah. your clothes so yeah. that you're not going and reinfecting, all that stuff. So how you do know. you differentiate? Oh, gosh, my gosh, we could actually <laughs> go to so many topics here. But <laughs> just quickly on nipple thrush, like obviously mastitis is more serious, isn't it? So very, very, very different. And okay. they will present different. And See, often this just shows my ignorance. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, some, not yeah, sometimes thrush can... Um, be hard to explain but yeah when you've got it you know yeah. yeah okay because it really is i mean sometimes you get ductal thrush which then is in the breast as opposed to just on the nipple but generally with nipple thrush it's quite localized to the nipple itself right with kind of like a stingy so it's, re- it's really pain. itchy um it can be but it tends to be more of a stingy uncomfortable right sensation and quite painful when you feed as opposed to mastitis where Mastitis, because it's infection, you don't you feel terrible. Like yeah, you have it's like flu-like fever. symptoms. Okay. Yeah, and sometimes and you often have a pain in one in one breast or the other, depending on which one's affected. Right. So yeah, they 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 present quite differently. Uh huh. Um, but mastitis can generally be treated quickly, whereas the thrush is a little bit of a really? you know it's one of those things that you kind Do of you have use to canister. With the thrush, yeah, um, or is it different? Oh uh, no, I mean, there's a there's some creams or gels. It kind of depends on the situation if the baby's got it or as well, or whether it's just you about what we would use. Um, yeah. and then you know, like, is it just on the nipples or ductal? You know, like it kind of varies as opposed to mastitis, which sometimes you can treat mastitis um, conservatively without yeah. antibiotics, and then you can or you can use antibiotics if it's really bad. So, you know, and the same thing with block ducts. Like block ducts is kind of different again mm. and some people can get blocked ducts and never get mastitis or they can get mastitis without ever having a noticeably blocked duct like it's so different for each person mm. and it's just if you've got any concern about any of that it's just about communicating that yeah with the midwife and if you know you've tried one form of treatment and it's not working then to keep communicating that so that you can get on top of it because you don't obviously want to leave it for ages and yeah. ages and then it becomes a real battle um, okay, we've got to wrap up because we've been talking for ages. But I wanted to finish on another slightly humorous question. Someone wanted to know, is it courteous to get rid of their hair down there midwives? It's another one in the... Man. Uh, it's in the same kind of genre as the pilling one. But look, I'm sure there's a lot of people out there that want to know what is um, considered I love that. Normal. Is it courteous? <laughs> You don't give a shit. I mean, do you know what? I don't care. Like, do we? Don't, honestly, we don't care. No one's sitting like, there does going. Does it make a difference? They can't get tangled in the hair on the way out, can they? The baby cannot get tangled. Okay, cool. Because that was a fear of mine. Yeah, okay. absolutely not. It's yep, fine. Cool. Do yep. what you want to do. Because the reality is, I mean, honestly, like I was saying to you before, actually, waxing can be very painful. Yeah. In like pregnancy, and when it comes to shaving, how are you going to see? Yeah. Well, I have a friend, Jason. Hi. Oh, shout out to the story. <laughs> anyway, anyway, he, yeah. Anyway, sometimes I oh, I don't know. I'm gonna shut up. I'm gonna keep my mouth quiet. But um, okay, cool. So yes, 
do not stress. It's not what people are thinking about when you're in there. It's probably the, the last thing. Absolutely Correct. the last thing. We are not judging you ever about anything like that. Having said that, if it makes you feel better, do whatever you want to do. hundred percent. And for some people, it's more about, you know, obviously, you know, you're going to have a baby, you're absolutely mm. going to be bleeding afterwards. And so some people think, actually, that will be better for me after the birth, mm. that I don't have to worry about that. Okay. You know, so absolutely. Like if it, you feel better about it and you feel less self-conscious about it, yeah, then go for it. But often we're not really looking because if we're looking down there it's because we're you know watching the baby, baby yeah, so yeah. we kind of actually focused about that more than so you're anything. not having like a competition on who has no <laughs> and we're not something you know we don't walk past you in the street later on when we finish caring for you like hey i know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah you better not judge me right yeah. like, let's just have this chat now oh thank you so much for joining me today i know it's been a long one we've had a 36 week catch up where we've talked about what's going to happen in the birth kind of loosely and um and yeah now we've done this chat so you have earned your time to go home it's your actual day <laughs> off today no so. so thank you so much Renee you are welcome and um yeah I was gonna say if you've got any questions for Renee I don't know if I'm gonna open up that floodgate for you so people can reach out but maybe maybe we do another one of these down the track yeah absolutely and you know the thing is if you are pregnant and you've got questions like absolutely take your questions to your midwife. Yeah, you know what I mean. Don't like, be afraid to absolutely ask not. Because the thing is, is that sometimes different, you know, midwives will have slightly different views on things and opinions. So it is important that the midwife that's caring for you is where you're getting your information. You know, your from. information from. Too, if you have a pressing question about your care right now, so and what know. are your thoughts on Doctor Google? <sighs> yeah, don't Google it. <laughs> I've Googled so much. I know, but everybody does. We sit there and say, don't Google it, but you know what? <laughs> You're everybody gonna do does. <laughs> Honestly, it's better than if you ask us and we Google it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, amazing. Thank you so much. Oh, good. That was my very... Chunky chat uh, with Renee, my midwife. Um, and as she did say uh, towards the end there, you know, if you are pregnant or if you're looking to get on this journey, do seek advice from your midwife or your GP, your health professional. Advice can differ um, from different people. So talk to someone you trust and, and make sure you are getting that sound information. Um, but I hope you got something from today. And wherever you are on your journey, I wish you all the best. I'll be back for another episode next week. Don't forget to subscribe, leave a review. Can't talk. And, um, yeah, peace. Peace, man. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.